Welcome to the Big MX Radio Podcast brought to you by Fox Racing Canada, Fox Racing USA, as well as Guts Racing. Thanks to Andy Gregg for supporting this podcast. I am your host, Brad Gebhardt, with us on the line. He's a repeat offender on the podcast. In fact, this is his third time being a guest. It's been almost 18 months since we had him on last. We thought that a pandemic would be done by then, but that's not the case. Uh, he was a pretty big deal and just one of those movers and shakers When uh, with the movie Fresno Smooth. Seems to steal everybody's woman back then. But uh, we're going to get to the bottom as to how. Jimmy Button. Jimmy, how's it going? I'm good, buddy. How are you? Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you, man. I watched. I'm doing well. I, I watched uh, Fresno Smooth earlier this week, and, and that's... It's it's a cinematic marvel. Oh man, that uh, that movie was. It, I'll tell you what, it was pretty fun making that. It was um, uh, it was interesting to say the least. I remember uh, I actually got to spend an entire day with uh, with Lemmy from uh, that's kind of cool. Yeah, yeah, at a, at a bar in Orange County where we were doing we were filming. Uh, one of the scenes, and so we got to hang out for a whole afternoon, which is pretty uh, pretty epic. So um, yeah, it was fun times. That's that movie is. Uh, I think it's more popular now than it was when it got released originally. So I don't know. It's a it's a good one for sure. No kidding. Uh, like not to start the podcast completely off on that note, but like, what do you remember <laughs> most about? Uh, the filming of that, I think you're only in a few scenes, like from the jump show, yep. and then as well as like the at the end when you steal. Uh, I don't want to give it away, but you definitely steal yeah. Mike Metzger's girlfriend. Um, uh, I definitely stole Mike Metzger's girlfriend. <laughs> everybody, you stole Metzger's girlfriend. You like completely just ruined Denny Stevenson. What was that all about, man? Like you just like you had the moves with ladies or what? I, I don't. I honestly don't know because when the when the guys at uh, Fox and Schiff when Scrap and those guys, uh, John Fox called me and said, "Hey, we want you in the movie." Like, you know, like you're single. We kind of know like how you guys run in the circles and whatnot. But we want to like make you this guy that like steals everybody's everyone's girlfriend. So I'm like, ah, I don't care, whatever. I mean, this whole I, I we thought it was just going to be some video that was going to be just funny and it ended up turning into what it is so it um i don't know it was a blast filming it we all had a really good time and i actually got to meet some really cool people out of the out of the whole thing like guys like rob machado you know surf guys and i actually met ron jeremy which is a total trip um and some other guys but yeah it was it was fun times but i mean that's I mean, that's kind of, uh, that kind of encapsulates nineties, right. A little bit of, of supercross, like going from, you know, call it a, you know, like this back alley, um, sport to some degree to like making it to a little bit to the mainstream and, um, that, that kind of influx of, of, you know, call it a bit white trashy into something else or whatever. So yeah, it's, uh, it's an interesting time, that's for sure. Absolutely, and directed by Troy Adamidas, who, for those who remember recall that name, every single one of those great outdoors videos that we watched over and over and over and over again, at least I did as a kid, that's the director of that movie, put so many cool people together, including Wee Man, who at the time was pretty... Like he was like not as well known as he is now. Obviously, most pop cultural individuals would know who that is, and he's he's in that. Like it, it's t totally just a cool kind of like snapshot in time. And uh, 
yeah, the whole thing was also a bit of an ad for Fox and Shift. Yeah, it certainly was. That's for sure. Yeah, love it, man. Well, uh, so don't steal anybody else's girlfriend. I think you're happily married now. Um, I'm, I'm good. I'm good now. <laughs> perfect. Uh, the, everyone can breathe the sigh of relief that way. Uh, we're rolling into Anaheim one. Uh, the whole industry is a buzz. I'm sure, like like you said off air, it doesn't exactly blow your skirt up the way it used to. Um, but the very first time that we saw Jimmy Button roll up to the line at a Supercross was in Anaheim. Essentially, um, like a, almost like like having your first race in your own backyard for a, a guy like you. Take us through that. What that was like for yourself, like getting ready, like set your eyes on the first ever event you're going to race in a West Coast Supercross and uh, a highly talented amateur. You were like for for those who are aren't aware, like you're right up there on, on a amateur scene as like the, the, the James Stewart's of the world, the Austin Forkner's of the world. And the, the, those like highly tired amateurs, you come out and you get yourself a third. Yeah. It was, I mean, the, the interesting thing was, I mean, things are just different back then, right? Like, mm-hmm. you know, I had just come off of winning, uh, Loretta's, um, you know, that was, Loretta's was my last amateur race. And, um, at that time, you know, I think I'd won six titles at Loretta's, which then was the record, right? Like I had then become like the winningest amateur rider at Loretta's ever, which not that hard to do since Loretta's has only been around for five or six, seven years at that point. Right. And um, you're only like allowed to be in two where, classes a year. Yeah. You know, not like it's now we're, you know, we're 40 years down the road type of thing. Um, but, you know, in, in saying that things are just different, right? Like, had I walked out of, had I walked out of uh, Loretta's being who I was, what I was doing, like say this year, right? Like I'd either be on pro circuit factory Honda or star racing or KTM or gas gas. I'd be on one of those like really established teams. Right. But back then things were just a little bit different. So, you know, when I show up to a one, like, it was me and my dad and my mom and in our little tiny white Chevy van, you know, cause I was a privateer. Like when I, when I moved up, like Honda didn't even give me any, any support, no factory support. We didn't get any bikes for free, no parts. Like I was as full privateer as you're ever going to see. Um, and so the funny story is, you know, back then you had these date, you had practice in the morning and then you had these like daytime qualifiers to make it to the night show kind of similar to today, but it's all based on lap times. And I remember I got into the night show, like just barely. I mean, I think I crashed or something in, in the qualifying race. It's only, you know, like four laps. And so I made it in by like one or two positions. And I remember going back to the truck, you know, and you're like outside the big A and I'm just sitting there just going, Oh my God, like, what did I get myself into? Am I like not as good as I thought I was? Am I, am I even going to be able to make the main tonight? Cause I barely even made the night show. Um, and then, you know, then the race goes on and, you know, I ended up having a decent heat race. And then I was actually battling for the, for the win, uh, a little bit with, uh, with Mike Craig and Bud and those guys, um, in the main event, I ended up getting third, you know, in the main and, and walked away with my first podium. Um, and my very first race, which is super, super cool. Um, you know, so, I mean, it's just, it's just a different time and place. And so, you know, Anaheim was a little bit different back then too, right? That was before they reconfigured the stadium. And it was, I think there was like 70,000 people to race. 
it was wow you know huge 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 stadium that went all the way around it wasn't you know because i want to say that maybe like the los angeles rams used to play there that's right um yeah back then yeah yeah. so i I, I think it was a both a football and a baseball stadium and so the stadium was just bigger um but that was like my first you know and i want to say that was probably only my third or fourth supercross race that i'd ever even been to in my life um you know we really never went to to the supercross races so um you know not only was you know it kind of my first race but it was really it was certainly my first time like being down on the field and all that stuff so it was uh, i was a fish out of water but ended up doing okay and you know, I think that first year I ended up with, you know, two or three other podiums or something like that during the season. But, yeah, Anaheim was uh, was definitely the first taste of Supercross for me. No doubt. Um, like, yeah, like you said, up and down season, you end up crashing out of a couple in Oklahoma City uh, as well as uh, San yep. Diego. Um, but otherwise, very successful for you. So, um in the like in in the history of motocross, we've seen some guys that don't have full factory support at the beginning of a series. They they show out for a particular ma- manufacturer, and they do end up getting some support. Was that your case for Honda, or um, w- were they still sort of one eyebrow raised uh, when the series wrapped up in in Los Angeles? No, it was it was quite strange actually. So obviously, I get third with the first race, the second race is in Houston. So we go to Houston and I lose um, at the end of the second practice session. I lost, I lost like something with my ignition, right? Uh, went out, I don't know if it was a black box or, or what it was. Um, I think Honda's back then actually had a little bit of a problem with the kill switches. But um, so I started losing the ignition. So I had to go out for, you know, we went over to the Honda truck and said, hey, like, can we borrow we don't have any parts. Like you guys have like an extra mission that you guys could like loan us out or give us or something. And they did, but they're like, yeah, we got to keep it because in case something goes wrong with one of the other riders bikes, one of the factory guys bikes, like, you know, we got to be able to supply them or like, okay, well that sucks. Um, and sure enough, you know, like first lap of the heat race, the bikes just, you know, spitter spattering the whole way around the track. And, I end up not qualifying for the main event in Houston because I'm simply the bike just won't run. Um, so I went from third in the championship like back to like seventh or eighth or whatever it was like in one fell swoop. So, um, yeah, I mean, it was a bunch of ups and downs, but yeah, I, I didn't end up getting any support from Honda for the whole season. Um, but then like three quarters of the way through, through the year, Yamaha started talking to me and, and uh, that's when the whole DGY team got put together. And, uh, so yeah, Honda didn't come through, but um, Yamaha kind of took notice, and uh, we started working on that whole thing. And you know, I ended up on DGY for the next couple of years. Yeah, you were thirty nine on a, the following year. Uh, no, the following well, that was Henry. Year, I was yeah, no, no. I so I was fifty nine my rookie year. I was forty eight in ninety one, and then in ninety two. Actually, when I won my first Supercross race in '92, I was actually number 39. There you go. Okay, so the two years yeah. with uh, with those guys, and, and it's good to act like. In, maybe you can speak volumes to this. Is that, I, and I've talked to a guy like Colt Nichols about this. Is that one of the things that I think is sort of one of the linchpins to his success? And eventually, sometimes it, like guys need a little bit of a change of scenery, but. When you get that second year on a program, you know your feet are on solid ground and you're not having to sort of worrying about like, hey, what's happening in the next six months? 
Um, you can actually you can build off of that base of fitness that you've developed with these people that you're familiar with. How important is it, or like how how uh, like beneficial can it be having that continuity in your 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 program? I mean, I don't think I don't think you can put enough weight into it. Um, you know, there's I think there's the notion out there for maybe some people. Um, uh, that think, you know, the guys, you know, and I say guys as in riders, that they do their best when they're like heads always on the chopping block and they're only on a one year deal. Um, the reality is that's just not true. Um, you know, not going to make, um, that's not going to make a rider like work harder or want it more. I, that's to, to think that's, to me, it's just absolutely insane. Like all the guys that are there are working their asses off and they all want to be better. They all want to win. They all want to be on the podium. They all want to have longevity in the sport. Um, and so when you have a situation where you have a couple of years on a team, like it's riders are not getting complacent and getting lazy when they have that situation happen all they're doing is just allows them to really build their program to become closer with their mechanics, closer to the engineers, know what the game plan is going to be for the foreseeable future. Um, and I think that it's, it's so important to do that because everything in this sport is really about consistency, right? Like the guys that consistently start good, the guys that consistently get to the races and aren't hurt, the guys that are consistently having a good bike setup. I mean, all these things help raise your level of having good results, right? And so I don't think there's enough weight that can be put on uh, that can be put on that idea of uh, being locked into a team for one, you know, for two, three, even longer years. I mean, um, I think a prime example of that is like you look at um, you look at Kenny. Right. I mean, he's entering his sixth season right now with Honda and, and granted had that crash never happened at a two in 17 or whatever year it was. Um, the trajectory of where he would have gone and the amount of championships that he would have already won would be significantly different than what's happened so far. Right. Like he's lucky he still has his arm attached to him and all these things. Um, but in looking at that, like he knows the program. Everybody knows him. Like they're, they know each other so well that they're not having to rebuild and rethink. All they're doing is sharpening and sharpening and sharpening all their tools all the time. And, and it ends up just becoming a situation where they're just polishing up everything that they have. And so, you know, that's why you see the results. I mean, and you see it too. Like look at, look at Formula One. Like look at Lewis Hamilton. Uh, look at Max Verstappen. Like the, the championship uh, fight that they have this year. I mean, they both have been on those their their particular teams for a right. long period of time, and everything around them is built to win. Um, and and those are two two athlete drivers that are at the pinnacle of the sport. I mean, look at the championship fight that they had. So, um, and I don't think you can do that when you have someone jumping around from team to team to team to team, um, whether that's because they want to, which is generally not the case, or that they just simply have to to keep. Uh, to keep their employment to where it needs to be. So uh, I know that that's a long-winded answer, but I, I think I covered it all. 
I, I totally agree. I, I think at the when you first get onto a, a brand new team or a brand new workplace, there's a lot of there's there's adjustments that happen throughout, like getting the right people around you. You get used to each other. You finally get into a rhythm. Like when you start with a brand new trainer, you don't really know what works until you've put in probably a couple, maybe two, three months worth of time. And two, three months in the span in this course of a motocross off season, that's the whole thing. Like basically, I always like kind of like yeah. I, I sort of have to like chuckle to myself as people talk about this, like the the off season training. Like it's basically the equivalent of like a eight week fitness challenge. Because it's literally you come off of outdoors, you take a week or two off, and then it's boom, and then A1 is in two weeks, by the way, like get ready. Um, it, it's it's yeah. like that. And all of a sudden, so if you're able to have a second year or even maybe even a third year with the same trainers or the same staff, you're you're just making little tweaks. You're, you're, you're getting those little 1% that those things add up to the ability to just separate yourself from everybody else whom they might, they themselves might be dealing with some like uh, irregularities or, or having to adjust to those things. And I think that's really what makes people uh, makes, makes a huge difference in programs. Yeah, no doubt. It's true. It's uh, it's a crazy, you know, like you said, what off season there is, it's, it's very, very short. Um, you know, and if you're dealing with an injury and you've had to like get an operation like after the season's over, I mean, it really shortens up your ability to to continue to grow and continue to build. And that's why you see guys that have had a couple of you know one, two, or three seasons in a row that really haven't been injured. You really start to see those guys like really shine. They start making less and less and less mistakes. Uh, and their performances uh, start to become very predictable, um, and so yeah, it's just a, it's just, it's a unique situation for sure. Hundred percent, man. Well, uh, hopefully, uh, it's it's a great season for uh, a number of guys, the guys that you're currently working with. Uh, first and foremost, that comes to mind is the great Justin Bogle. Um, like on a brand new team for this year, Suzuki, something he's familiar with. I'm sure some of the parts that he was with, uh, a couple of the, the RCH as well as he, was he with, uh, JGR as well? Yes, he was. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. so back on Suzuki, uh, familiar territory for him. Um, but like, what do you say to a guy like Justin Bogle now? His season is, I believe sixth full season, on a 450, first with Geico, then he bounced around a little bit, sort of in in a, in a lot of ways, um, like the exact opposite of what we just talked about. A lot of unsureness and, and 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 changes within his program year over year. What do you say to a guy like that going into a season uh, with a brand new team that he's that he hasn't worked with in the past? Like he's obviously a professional, he knows what he's doing. But w- what's your communication with him like? Yeah, I mean, I think for, for a guy like JB, it's a little bit different, right? Like, he's a little bit older now. Um, he's, he's had some great success. I mean, you know, he won a, a 250 Supercross championship. Um, he's won a 450 outdoor race. And so, yeah, is he the championship contender guy? No, he's not, but he is a championship guy, right? And so he's super experienced. He, and he's, I think he's also finding himself into a position that actually he likes quite a bit. Um, you know, he had three really great seasons with, um, uh, with the Rocky Mountain, uh, uh, Rocky Mountain ATVNC, KTM factory team. Um, and those, you know, and he, he was able to kind of rebuild himself a little bit there. And, 
you know, they were kind of making some big changes as they were going into 22 from an ownership standpoint and a number of other things. And so for him, the opportunity with Suzuki when it came up actually came at a really good time. And it was something that he was pretty interested in straight away because, again, um, uh, fortunately or unfortunately, he's going back to a bike that really hasn't changed much since he rode a Suzuki. And so um, he is familiar with the chassis. He's familiar with the engine. Um, and kind of the position that he's in is that, you know, he's obviously on a team that is on their way up. They're, they're ascending to kind of the team level and they're becoming a better and better team. And so it gives him an opportunity to be um, very much be a leader on the team and help, you know, and help guide them and direct them because, as you said, he's ridden an HRC bike. He's ridden factory equipment. He's been on factory teams. He's done all these things at a really high level. So he can help this team, the HEP team, um, really grow and expand. And, you know, and also with their, with their sponsor, uh, with the Twisted T guys, you know, Justin's really, he's a really funny, cool guy on social media. And that's actually something that those guys are really interested in. So, his personality as well as his ability on the track really meshes really well with the team. And so the fit was, was pretty good straight away. And he's actually just been enjoying the off season training, getting used to the bike. He went over and did the pair of supercross and, you know, came up a little bit short of getting on the podium there, but kind of just, you know, I think he's a little bit remotivated, you know, here in these, you know, as he's you know, getting into the high twenties, uh, you know, he's not quite 30 years old yet, but, you know, he's getting up there, but he's really kind of enjoying, like, and in, in embracing this kind of new, you know, this kind of new role that he has uh, at the HEP team. No, yeah, I'm really excited to see what he's able to uh, to bring to that team. Uh, obviously, uh, the team manager Dustin Pipe, he himself is an experienced guy. Obviously, a a journeyman uh, privateer over the years, but uh, JB literally brings uh, that that top flight factory experience uh that he, that he can he can communicate with those guys like he knows the 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 limits of what they're able to pr uh, that provide for him but also be like hey uh like in the past when i was with this team we did this or hey like we might be able to like this would be a, a great use of resources doing that and that's where i think a guy like him can really add some extra value uh and then on top of that the social media platform like on this is something that like most people they, they see uh, his social media doesn't seem as maybe as approachable because he's got kind of like a almost like a um, a colder exterior, but like like one of the funniest guys I've ever talked to. Um, really, really warm personality in general. Um, he he's he's a great person to have in your corner as far as like uh, if you're wanting a, a brand to to have genuine exposure. Like there's a lot of guys who are willing to like yeah do a little like, like stand next to a monster can or something like that, but when well, I feel when when Justin takes on a sponsor or somebody he he wants to support, like he's very genuine that he only really works with companies that he genuinely wants to work with. Yeah, yeah, and he's 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 pretty true to himself, and I think that's another reason why people do like him. Um, you know, uh, I think he's probably a little bit misunderstood. You know, and I I think that that's you know that's a, a judgment that he hasn't gotten fairly, you know, because, you know, people think that, you know, because he enjoys music and, um, and likes making music and everything that he's not focused on racing, but 
you know, I, it's funny because, you know, like a, a guy like Cole Seeley back in the day when he was racing, like Cole Seeley was really into drifting, into drift cars. And no one thought, no one thought anything of that because it was something that was automotive, but that was his hobby. That was what he loved to do outside of racing. And yep. Justin loves music outside of racing. And, but for whatever reason, the, perso- the, 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 the view that people put on, on music versus that is so much different. It's like, Oh, you know, he's not really into it because he actually made an album. Well, it's, you know, this is, this is, you know, you know, 2000, you know, what are we in? We're 2022. I mean, it's not that hard to make an album anymore. I mean, with the technology that you can go buy, um, you know, and software that you can get, like, you can produce your own stuff and it, it's not like you're having to, you know, do what you had to do 30 years ago. So yeah, it's just kind of funny the way people look at things, but you know, I think the people that know Justin and, uh, and understand him and are around him on, on a, on a regular basis, you know, that he's just a super genuine guy that, you know, works his butt off like anybody else and wants to have some good results like everybody else. For certain. Like it, it comes down, it's a bit of a perceptual bias of like rap music in general. I think for, for, for those oh, for who, sure. And, and yeah, like for, for me, it's, it's one of those things where oh, my roast is almost done. Um, but, uh, yeah, it, it's just different. Like people can maybe they can associate with, or they, they can they, like with the, the drifting of cars, like it makes sense in their head. They, maybe they just don't understand, uh, music, but honestly, if you had, if you had the talent and the means to be able to pay for recording studio time, like, wouldn't you go do it yourself? You know what I mean? Like it just like. I just yeah. feel like not not enough people really uh, like understand uh, that hobby, but um, yeah, for sure. So let, let's get back to some Anaheim One talk, uh, and that was actually your last race as a professional, where you actually were able to uh, yeah. uh, com- compete in all the uh, all, all the laps. Obviously, San Diego was the the last race we saw you line up for practice on uh, uh, an injury that um, shook the the industry to its core. I, I, I can honestly say that as a fan who was uh, watching races at the time, um, it was, it was a gut punch. Uh, but, uh, and when we've talked about that on this podcast before, but let's spin the clocks back to the two weeks prior to that Anaheim one and two, uh, the year 2000, um, like your, your factory Yamaha, um, you're number 12 at the time, correct? Correct. Yeah, it was the first year of the permanent numbers. Permanent number twelve. Why did you pick twelve? Um, it was the first one that was available. Actually, okay. um, you see, the first pick, see, the first pick. Um, I think Larry Ward had the first pick. He took ten. Ezra had the second pick. He picked eleven. I was third. I took twelve. Um, and we were the we were the first three to to get um, our numbers that weren't that we hadn't won a championship. So I think my earned number, I think my earned number for, for uh, 2000, if they would have been back in the earned number days, I think I would have been six, seven or eight, something like that. Okay. Um, Cause I yeah. had a good season. I had a good season in 99. Um, so it would have been, a, I would have had a single digit. Um, but, you know, they would have kept the old um, earned number uh, situation, but they'd gone to permanent numbers. And so I had third pick and that's, uh, that's the one I chose. So, yeah, that's kind of how that didn't, didn't, uh, didn't use it very long, but, um, uh, I guess I, I earned enough points in those first two races to keep it for, for the following year. 
And then uh, my teammate, David Villman, actually ended up calling me up and said, hey, I want to take your number. Or would you be cool with it? I said, well, I don't really have a choice, but, um, but yeah, we can, uh, we can definitely do that. Interesting. Okay. You didn't, you didn't have to like, you didn't have to like buy a, buy you a watch or something. No, no, no. I mean, I'm like, David, you don't really need to ask me, but I mean, I'm, I'm like flattered that you did, but yeah, certainly like do it, run it, you know, do as well as you can with it. And he ran a number 12 pretty well, I'd say. Yeah, I think he did. He did pretty pretty well with it. Uh, um, yeah, it's, it's actually funny that there's. I guarantee there's got to be over the years pictures of you that are tagged of him and vice versa. Because at some point you guys were both Fox guys. Um, yeah. I, I think I think DV actually set a record for number of different companies you can wear in one career. Like off the top yeah, of my yeah, head. Oxbow, Wolf Sport, Thor, Fox, Shark. No Fear. I think he had, I think he had Shark. He the Shark helmets. UFO. Yeah, he wore UFO. I think. Um, yeah. Uh, the first time I raced against the first time I raced against David. Funny story was in 1995 uh, in France. Race. In the no, 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 no. In the summertime when I was okay. over there racing GPs. And we did this little race in a, in a little town in France called Lavore. And it was a super, super cool, like super cross track, like in the middle of town that uh, had been built. And they had this, you know, they had this, you know, like summertime evening super cross there. And I was riding a 250 and he was on a 125, but then we had like a super finale. I had won the 250 main event. He won the 125 main event. And then we had the super finale and I ended up, Funny, I ended up having like this weird little crash, and, and I didn't end up getting to finish the uh, that main event. I think he won the super final, um, but yeah, that was the first time I actually met David. Fair enough. Like, that, that, that's like super French DV. Like he might not even oh, yeah. spoke a lick of English back then. Was he on Cal? Yeah, probably, probably, probably a little bit. Most of the GP riders back then uh, spoke a little bit of uh, spoke a little bit of English. For sure, that that's something that doesn't get talked about nearly enough with your career. Is when you went over uh, after uh, wrapping up a, uh, a a Supercross championship, nineteen ninety. You won one Supercross championship, did you not? No, no, I got second to Ezra in ninety four, <sighs> and I, I left and went over there for ninety five. Ninety five. Uh, we have to do an entire podcast on your 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 nineteen ninety five CR one twenty five. Oh um, man, that thing is that was is, a trip. Ugh. Um, but that's something that, that not, that doesn't get talked about nearly enough in your 10 year career went over there. Um, I'm sure you've got stories for days about being in Europe, pre-internet, all that stuff. Like it was pre-internet. It was, it was, it was early cell phone days. I mean, if you, if you made a phone call from, you know, from, I mean, I was living in Italy. I mean, it was, I knew you were spending dollars by the minute. To, to call back to the U.S. So, I mean, I, I, I didn't, you know, I went over there by myself. I didn't, I didn't speak to home very much. And, um, yeah, I, looking back, it was a, a super great part of my, uh, part of my career, that's for sure. Absolutely. Why didn't, like, you just get your buddy Jeremy to hook you up with some Dial Dial Center with C-O-L-L-E-T-T? <laughs> dial 1-800-Collect? Yeah, uh, yeah, the 1-800-COLLECT thing didn't work on international stuff back then. Even after I was sponsored by 1-800-COLLECT later on, I, um, uh, it, it never worked when we went to Europe to, uh, to do international races. So, yeah. 
because I think it was actually, I think that was actually owned by a company called MCI. I think, I think that's actually who the, uh, the owner of 1-800-COLLECT was. Okay. That, 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 the 1-800-COLLECT, I'm looking at a, at a Ricky Carmichael jersey with 1-800-COLLECT on the front of it. Like, that's a, maybe one of the most main, mainstream, like, sub- sponsors that's ever, aside from, like, Camel Cigarettes or Chevy Trucks, that the sport has yeah. ever had. Yeah, I mean they were they were great too. I mean they used to come to they would come to a ton of races and they were they were super cool and supportive. I mean they spent a lot of money, uh, you know, supporting certainly supporting Jeremy and the Honda team and then supporting the Yamaha team when uh, when uh, when he came over to uh, to Chaparral and um, I think they also did a deal. I think they had a deal with Mitch as well at the time. Yes, yes, the the pro circuit team. Um, yep. I'm not entirely sure what the yep. tie-in was there, but good to like uh, like while it was around, like I guess like collect calling kind of went the way of the dodo bird short shortly thereafter with just calling becoming a lot just less expensive. But uh, yeah, there's not a lot, there's there's not a lot of uh, touch tone phones just hanging out everywhere like they used to be at the airports and stuff like that. That's for sure. No, do you have a do you have a a, a landline at home? Oh no, no, yeah. I've not I've not had a landline. Since uh, 2003. Fair enough. Just three years yeah. prior to your, uh, your 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 career ending. But uh, so we kind of got yeah. sidetracked there. But like, what do you remember yeah. about getting ready for your last? Like you were you were obviously getting ready for the full season. Uh, unfortunately, yeah. it only lasted the two rounds for you. But what do you remember about that off season and then leading into your last Anaheim one? Yeah, I mean, it was, I mean, I actually had a really good offseason. Um, I came off uh, the last four or five nationals um, with a bunch of podiums and a win and carried a lot of momentum into the offseason. Obviously, I just signed a new long-term deal with Yamaha, which was great. It goes back to that stability that we talked about earlier. Um, and I did a bunch of international races that year, and, and Yamaha was really cool. Like, they – they crated up my uh, I mean, we, we it was funny but back then because the bike was so much different. We basically had to crate up and and box up a, almost an entire bike and ship it to all the international races. So we'd have a you know we'd have an engine box, we'd have a, a chassis box, you know we'd have boxes for you know, wheels and uh, linkage and swing arm and triple clamps and uh, you know and basically almost everything I think we would use almost everything, but a frame. Um, and I would run a production frame wherever we were going, but I had a great off season. I'd won a bunch of races. Um, how I think I'd won, I won every international race until we got to Japan and me and Jeremy had a really good race on both Friday and Saturday night in Osaka, Japan. I think LaRocco was third, but Jeremy won both nights. I got second both nights, but carried a lot of momentum into the season. And uh, I, I rode, I think I rode pretty, if I remember right, I think I rode pretty well. I was fast at both uh, A1 and A2. Um, I made a couple of mistakes and jumped off the track. I, I think I was battling for a podium at the first one. I jumped off the track, went back to like eighth or whatever, and worked myself back up. I, I don't know, I ended up fifth or sixth or something like that on the first night. And, um, I think the second weekend, I, again, I was battling again. And I want to say, kind of funny enough, I think I stalled my bike. Um, 
And uh, by then, I actually learned how to start the thing pretty damn fast, which I didn't have that first year in '99. But I think I rode pretty good at both uh, at both rounds. I don't think I was really happy with with the results of them, but um, I think I rode pretty well. And and I knew that I was from a speed standpoint, I was I was really in the mix. And you know, then we went to San Diego, and I had, we had a really good um, we had a really good Friday during press day. And uh, even the first, because I got hurt in the second practice session, the first practice session went really great. I think me, Jeremy, and Billman were one, two, three in lap times. And then I got hurt on the very first lap of the second practice. Just, you know, I was just rolling through the whoops and ended up crashing and going down. But, um, yeah, I, I want to say things were things were looking like and feeling like they were we were going to have a pretty good season. Uh, and then obviously Jeremy ended up winning the championship and David got second. Um, so I think, you know, I think we, we were all kind of in that same mix. I, I think, you know, it had things not happen the way they did probably would have had a, probably would have had a pretty good supercross season that year and could have carried some momentum in the outdoors. Well, no doubt. And, and, uh, like racing a four stroke in supercross at that time obviously it had been done by by doug henry but this is still very much in its infancy uh what what, what were some of the quirks about that machine i all we know about how, like kind of the on offs it would sort of hesitate sometimes and, and they were difficult to start but um on some of the slicker tracks like uh like anaheim especially anaheim 2 where obviously that base yeah. has been in there for a while um it just gets hard and slick do you feel like you had an advantage you know what? It's funny. Um, I, I would say I would say I didn't have an advantage. I'd say on some of the slick stuff I did, um, but generally when you when you when you look at a track from then, you know, I'll, I'll go back to, to my last couple, two years of racing '99 and the first couple races of 2000. The tracks were still very much, I mean, very much because I, I was the only really four stroke that was racing. Um, was very much still a two stroke track, right? A lot of rhythm stuff. Um, the jumps were made completely different. The tracks were built completely different. They're, they're really built now for speed. Um, whereas before they were all about rhythm and timing. And let's be honest, like, like I had my factory bike, like I'm actually looking at it right now. Like the bike that I got hurt on, like it's really, really heavy compared to what these guys are riding today. Um, and obviously this is back, you know, in 2000 where it was still carbureted, uh, you know, we're not talking EFI, so you can go on and off. Like on that bike, tabletop to tabletop was literally the scariest thing you could ever possibly do. Um, because there was so much hesitation, um, because it was the infancy of the bike, right? We were still trying to figure, figure everything out with it, you know, to redo bigger head pipes, skinnier head pipes, fatter head pipes, longer pipes, shorter pipes. And there was so much research that we were going on. And, um, and yeah, we had great engineers at Yamaha, but like we were developing everything. We were developing the, the playbook for all the four-stroke stuff at the time. You know, Honda, hadn't, their bike wasn't ready yet. Um, KTM's was still that big 540, which wasn't really much of a race bike. You know, and no one else really had anything else, you know, in the pipeline at the time. So, I mean, we were you know, we were guinea pigging a lot of things and the bike was just, it was difficult to ride supercross. It was great outdoors um, because outdoors, I, I think was a more of a, a level playing field. Um, but it was just, it was hard to ride. I mean, it was heavy. I mean, 
But, you know, this bike is a full works bike, and I think the thing weighs, you know, 260 pounds. You know, it was it was 35 pounds heavier than anybody else's bike, and I do the whole thing is magnesium, billet, carbon, tie. I mean, the whole thing is a, I mean, it's a full works bike, but it still weighed a ton. So it just didn't work as well, but, you know, things have changed, and the way that they build the tracks have changed, and, and um, uh, you know, just, a, just a, you know, it's what happens over time, right? Like everything evolves, uh, things become better. And that's certainly where the four stroke is these days. That's for sure. Oh, it's a, a lethal piece of machinery. Now, um, if it, if it, if it was given everything, anything up in back in 2000, it's, uh, certainly got every, every advantage of the book, uh, nowadays. Um, last thing I got for you before I let you go, I said I'd steal a half hour, I ended up taking double. So, uh, that's on me. Uh, but, uh, oh, make, make, make it up for it. Uh, when I see you later on this week in, uh, in California, um, going to put you on the spot. He won the, uh, the outdoor championship this year on a 450 as a rookie that hasn't been done in uh, in quite some time ever. I think the first last person to do that was Ryan Dungey. Guy before that would have been uh, Ricky Carmichael. Um, so he's already in uh, in 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 rare uh, company already. Uh, but sophomore year in Supercross, I need a prediction for uh, uh, or what do you expect to see from Dylan Ferrandez throughout this next season of Supercross? Well, I think it's great that Eli's on the team. Um, I think that's just going to bring the level up of the team, the level up of expectation. Uh, Dylan's got a ton of respect for him, obviously. Um, but I, I, what I expect out of Dylan is Dylan's, you know, a lot, unless you're as close to him as, as myself or his team, like a lot of people just don't really understand or know him. But he's a really, he's a really, passionate guy right he really wears his emotions on his sleeve and i think people start to start to see that during the outdoor season last year um but i mean i would say right now like he's he's ready um but they all kind of are right now right no one really knows how well the off season went until we walk away probably from the second round right you'll kind of get a glimpse of it but the first round is such a it's such a crapshoot because there's so much anticipation. Everybody kind of wants to get the season off to the start, but you know, I think Dylan is in a place where he's riding really well. He's, he's certainly, you know, amazingly fit. He now has several championships that he's won. So if he finds himself in a position where he is battling for a championship, I think from the managing it standpoint of managing the emotions, managing the week to week stress of what that is, I think he'll be in a good position. Um, but, you know, he's, he's yet to win a Supercross race on a 450, right? So, I mean, that's kind of goal number one. I think, well, actually, I'll take that back. Kind of goal number one is to, to be in a point where you're consistently battling for those podium positions. And then second goal, get that win. Uh, third goal, win again. Um, you know, so I think if he can get a couple of wins, uh, certainly if he can get a win, you know, within the first four or five races and have a couple of podiums to go along with that to help that confidence level uh, um, inside of him, both in himself and his, and his bike, um, I, think, I think he's got a chance to be pretty dangerous. Um, you know, I'd love to see him uh, in the mix for, for the title. It's a, it's a lot to ask. 
uh, even in, in, a, in a second year guy with, with now, you know, he's got four championships in the last three years, but it's, it's still a lot to ask for of anybody. I mean, the class is crazy. I mean, the, the amount of talent in there is unbelievable, but you know, if you can walk away with a, with a top three in the championship, uh, make it through the whole season really, really healthy and, and, you know, be able to go to outdoors, you know, slap that red number one plate on the bike and, and try to make it two for two uh, outdoors next year. That'd be great. But um, yeah, we'll see. I mean, it's, it's going to be tough, man. There's, there's so many guys that are hungry. There's so many guys that, that are, that have the ability that can win. I think there's going to be a few new winners this year. Um, you know, I, I wouldn't be surprised to see, five, maybe even six winners this year. I, I don't think that that's out of the, uh, you know, out of the realm of possibility. Cause when you guys got, you know, I think Chase Sexton will get a win. You know, I think AP could probably win. I think Dylan can win. Um, and then you got the normal guys, right. And then you got a guy like Jason Anderson coming, coming off a couple of bad seasons. who's a former supercross champion. So he could win. I mean, you could, I mean, you could have seven or eight, guys that win a race this year which would be incredible and it'd be great for the fans so we'll see what happens but i mean for for you know for my athletes you know guys like dylan and stuff like that like i hope he can get a win and uh and just be consistently you know up there in the mix uh fighting for good points every uh every weekend because i I don't think anyone's going to run away with this thing this year I think is we're in for uh, one hell of a championship, and it all gets kicked off this Saturday. Um, Jimmy, it's always a pleasure to have you on the show. Uh, I think we're going to dial yeah, you up. So- Appreciate you t- coming on. Always, man, always. Um, going to have to dial you up sometime around Daytona. I don't know what it is, something about Day- Daytona, and, and I don't think you, you never won the race itself, but uh, Daytona Supercross. Yeah, I won, and- it, I won, it, I won it in 94. You did win it in '94. That's right. I did win it in '94. Yeah, I, I uh, it's one of my it was one of my favorite races. So it's uh, it's a good one, man. At the man's track. There you go. So uh, with that, we're gonna we're gonna uh, earmark uh, to call you up the week before da- Daytona this year. Looking forward to that. Uh, we will probably maybe dive into that '95 Honda at the time because that's we we're talking. We'll be talking about the 1994 Daytona Supercross. Who who got who got the podium in that? Would you beat Ezra Lusk, uh, Tim Ferry? Just a just a couple of yep. just a couple of guys, you know. Yeah, a couple of dudes. Yeah, just uh, John Dowd, Mike Brown, Scott Sheik, rest in peace, Barry Karsten, on a definitely not a one twenty five. Um, <laughs> but uh, love it, man. Well, uh, I really appreciate you making the time for this. Um, yeah, looking man, forward no to seeing you this we'll, week. Uh, we'll, yeah, we'll catch you this weekend. Awesome. Well, do not hang up just yet, but for podcast sake, we're going to cut it off right there.